pleased to be joined on the line now by Brian Mir. Uh, Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire, as well as the Telesur correspondent in Brazil. Brian, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, we've seen the results of the first round of the Brazilian presidential elections. Uh, Brian, very much watched uh, all around the world with potential you know, geopolitical implications uh, implications for politics uh, in uh, South America as well as uh, 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 you know, well beyond uh, South America. Jair Bolsonaro, 43.2% of the vote in the first round. Uh, Lula to Silva, 48.4%. Was this uh, in line with expectations or is, it, is this uh, you know, sort of more or less what you expected uh, in terms of those first round results? Well, everyone was hopeful that, I mean, everyone who supported Lula was hopeful that it would end in the first round, but few people actually expected that to happen. Uh, the, the Workers' Party, the PT, which Lula belongs to, has never won a presidential election in the first round. And no uh, challenger has ever beaten an incumbent in a first-round election like happened um, this Sunday. So this was a historic first. Uh, Bolsonaro performed better than most polls had predicted. He was expected to be in the high 30s, mid to high 30s. He ended up with like 43%, as you said. This is mainly attributed to the implosion of third-place candidate Ciro Gomez who was polling between 6 and 9% all year and ended up with 3%. Polling agencies believe most of his votes went to Bolsonaro after he had spent months attacking Lula on a daily basis. And, you know, and also there was an issue with abstentions. Um, voting, voter lines were much longer than usual. Bolsonaro's people followed the Steve Bannon tactic of flooding the polling stations with volunteers. And there were things being done that appeared to that made it look like in some places they were deliberately trying to increase abstentions. For example, in Recife, the biggest city in the Northeast, which is the most pro-PT region, they changed the addresses of a lot of polling stations a couple of days before the election. Mm. And uh, since abstentions are usually the majority of the people who don't go out to vote are poor, and poor are voting, poor and working class are voting for Lula. At a two-to-one ratio, this favoured Bolsonaro. Now, uh, granted, uh, from what you've just described there, Brian, sounds like there's voter intimidation and attempts to manipulate the vote by uh, Bolsonaro supporters, and there are echoes there of uh, of the Trump campaign, and ma- people have made comparisons between Trump and Bolsonaro, of course, the, the, the so-called Trump of the tropics, but nevertheless, a very large, uh, significant vote for Bolsonaro. So... Uh, Break down briefly what the support base is. Is it more middle class based? Um, you know, obviously the, the poor people tend to lean towards Lula, but there is a, a substantial popular support base, it would seem, that remains for Bolsonaro. So how would you account for that given the, you know, the appalling reputation Bolsonaro has, you know, sort of for, for most people, um, as this, at least as a boorish kind of figure, or even as a proto-fascist, and yet he maintains, it seems, a popular support base. Well, uh, I've lived in Brazil 27 years. It's always had, it's always seemed to me like around 20% of the population had fascist sympathies, supported the sub-fascist U.S.-backed um, military dictatorship of 1964 to 1985, which Bolsonaro was a, uh, an officer in, and many of his generals and his cabinet were um, major players in that dictatorship. There's always been around 20% of the population 
that's, that's had fascist sympathies. Uh, those are the hardcore Bolsonaro, uh, you know, supporters. The other 20%, um, in general, they're people who are well or off. They're in the middle class. They didn't enjoy having to, for example, guarantee labor rights for kitchen maids, legislation that was passed in during the Bolsonaro administration. They don't enjoy the fact that their children now have to compete with people from the working class to get into university because they set up a quota system where 52% of university students have to come from the working class. Uh, economically, if you break the vote down, uh, Lula had over two to one support in within the economic group of people making less than two times the minimum wage. Every other income group supported Bolsonaro. Uh, and uh, especially the higher up you get, um, the more support for Bolsonaro in the income bracket. Also, university graduates, in majority support Bolsonaro, people with only high school or who haven't finished high school supported Lula. The issue for Bolsonaro with this is that 70% of the Brazilian population makes less than two times the minimum wage. So it's a significant economic group that favors Lula. Now, speaking of Lula, we, we don't really have time, Brian, to go into the whole background of uh, what took place in terms of Lula ending up in prison? Suffice it to say, the evidence would suggest that it was uh, a political conspiracy, I think is probably the best way to describe it, to remove him from the political scene in Brazil to try and prevent him from running for office again. And yet, uh, here we are. He's uh, the front runner for the second round of the presidential election. So uh, y- your thoughts, Brian, on a pretty amazing journey from Lula to go from president to prison and now potentially back to, back to president again? Yeah, well, um, he's been, you know, declared innocent of all 26 frivolous charges, some of which were entirely... The one that ended up putting him in jail was based entirely on one coerced plea bargain testimony by a businessman who was allowed to partial retention of his illicit assets and received like 85% sentence reduction to, to read off their script. I mean, that, that's a long story to get into. But yeah, I mean, even if Lula doesn't win this election, it's going to go down in history as one of the greatest political comebacks of all times. I mean, a year and a half ago, he was in jail, you know, on, and it looked like it was, you know, all hope was lost. There were hundreds of people kept in constant rotation from the labor unions and the uh, landless workers social movement who just camped outside of his prison cell just to yell good morning, good afternoon, good night to him every day for 580 days. Like every week the union would whip out the people. So, I mean, it's like, it's a really heartwarming story. Even if he doesn't win, it's still going to go down in history as a pretty impressive comeback. It, it's an inspiring story, an inspiring story, Brian. And, and what you've just mentioned there, I think, uh, points to really why he got out of prison and is in a position he's in. You, you've mentioned the, the strength of uh, uh, you know the trade union movement. Obviously, he's a former trade union leader himself. So talk to us a little about the uh, sustained social movement, social you know, pressure that actually did get him out of jail, uh, you know, to, to allow him to make that political comeback? Well, I think the pressure was one factor, but there were other factors in play, mainly that the charges weren't sustainable. They had to open an exception to the Constitution to even allow him to be imprisoned, which was done under threat from military general Vilas Boas on the eve of the Supreme Court ruling. And we're talking about a situation where the first Supreme Court justice who was supposed to oversee these Operation Car Wars charges 
against Lula and other leftist politicians died in a mysterious helicopter accident one day before he was supposed to rule on whether the Supreme Court would authorize the investigation, the findings or not. So the justices were scared. They got kind of threatened into um, opening an exception to the Constitution to let, Jew, uh, to let Lula be imprisoned. But there was no way of sustaining the charges. There just wasn't, there wasn't any evidence. And then, so they were already throwing out all of the accusations, reversing all the accusations. But then when the Intercept released some of those leaked telegram messages uh, produced by hacker Wagner Delgatti, who's facing 300 years in prison right now for, for his patriotism, they showed that the FBI had been meeting with the Lava Jato prosecutors every two weeks for five years. The, the Depart U.S. Department of Justice was in constant communication with the prosecutors, and that the prosecutors and the judge were talking every day. The judge was coaching them into how to deal with the media, how to make Lula look more guilty, and they were all joking that they knew Lula was innocent the entire time. So once that stuff was out, in addition to the legal processes that were already underway and the social pressure, it was just completely unsustainable to maintain Lula. Um, you know, without his political rights, without his right to run for office. And now, as we say, he does stand on the verge of assuming the office of the presidency, although there is obviously a second round to go, Brian, which brings me, brings me to my next question. Uh, Bolsonaro has gone on the public record, again, similar to Trump, and openly declared uh, in, ahead of time, preemptively, uh, that if the result goes against him, he, 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 won't, he won't accept it, that it will be uh, fraudulent by definition if, if he loses... What what form will that take, uh, Brian? I mean, it sounds uh, pretty frightening on on the face of it. It, it. Is there a possibility of a coup, an attempted coup d'état by Bolsonaro if he loses? Is it bluster on his part? What, what might happen? Uh, you know, assuming Lula wins that second round, what might happen in terms of Bolsonaro's uh, political reaction if he if he loses? Well, um, I think he's going to lose. Their goal is to come within, I think, to come within three points, three or four points. If they can come within three or four points again, they're going to cry that it was stolen, like Trump did. And I, I don't think he has the, he's more and more isolated inside of the government. I don't think he has the support in the military that, that some people think he does. We know that the Navy and the Air Force are backing him, but the Army, which is twice as large than both of them together, doesn't seem to be backing them. So I think it will probably be more a case of, you know, a January 6th type situation with a bunch of um, useful idiots, or as we, they say in Brazil, useful innocents, <laughs> who are just going to be like fanatic Bolsonaro supporters trying to storm a government building or something. But I don't think it would be successful. But it would be, this would be used to try and undermine a a potential Lula presidency the entire time. Yeah, I mean, that really brings me on to my uh, next and final question, Brian. As you say, uh, your chaos on, on the streets, uh, protests by uh, Bolsonaro loyalists and fascists and all the rest of it, would, I, I imagine, be uh, an attempt to undermine and disrupt uh, an incoming Lula administration, which, speaking more generally, assuming again that Lula does win that second round, what are your expectations of an incoming Lula government? Has he been potentially tamed somewhat by, by what's happened to him? Is he still the firebrand trade union radical he always was? I mean, it, will it be a reforming government or will he perhaps be reined in by, well, by, by the Brazilian ruling class, essentially? 
Well, uh, he lost the presidential election three times in a row. And then in 2002, he, he and his people decided that they weren't going to be elected on a true leftist platform. So he wrote a letter to the Brazilian people publicly saying that he was going to have to make some compromises with the capitalists in order to take and hold on to power. And then he flew up to Washington, told the Bretton Woods institutions he wouldn't default on their loans. And he was able to take power with a right-wing vice, center-right vice president. And it looks like he's doing the same thing this time around. And then what he did, he didn't default on the IMF loan. He paid it back two years early. Uh, He paid it back after two years, much earlier than had been planned, which relieved Brazil from all of the austerity conditionalities and enabled him to make massive increases in education and health spending. And so I think what's happening, what's going to happen this time around is going to be something similar, just that, you know, the world has changed since then. We don't know how it's really going to go, but he got a lot of things done in his first mandate, including annual above inflation minimum wage increases just on presidential decrees, on executive orders, ignoring the, the House and Senate. You know, so I, I have a feeling that would be how he would start making some changes when he takes office. But it's not going to be a radical left administration, that's for sure. You know, because of all the compromises he's having to make to even get to the point where he can take power. Like he just made a deal with the MDB party, which, you know, center right. They're a big player. So um, I think what we can see is sacrificing a lot of historic demands of the left, but focusing on reducing Amazon deforestation and eliminating hunger and re-establishing proper funding for the free public university and health systems.